Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hi, spooky people. This is Andrew Reynoso Akbarzad coming to you from California. And I'm an executive producer of the History Ghost Bump podcast. This episode is entirely listener supported. If you'd like to join me as an executive producer, check out the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com. And thanks for listening. <gasps> Did you hear that? Boom. <laughs> Scared you. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 174th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And we are going to the Wild West up to Haunted Deadwood on this episode. This location was suggested to us by two of our listeners, Lindsay Heisel and Carrie Rawling. And I hope I got your last names right, ladies. We're going to look at several locations in this town, and not all of them are necessarily haunted, but they have interesting stories to go with them and really help to add to the history of Deadwood. Before we do that, we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Michael. Hey, Michael. Viraj. Hello, Viraj. Ryan. Hello, Ryan. Darren. Hi, Darren. Shannon. Hey, Shannon. And Angela. Hello, Angela. And now we have our moment in oddity. And this moment in oddity was brought to us by Michael Rogers. An expedition led by Taj Muhammad Karinyazov and Mikhail Gerizimov began excavations in the Gur Emir in June of 1941. The goal was to open the tomb of Tamerlane the Great. The only problem was such a deed would unlock a curse. The men hoped to prove that this actually was the tomb of Tamerlane. They discovered remains of much of the family, and then on June 19th, the heavy stone was removed from Tamerlane's tomb. Muslim clerics and local residents tried to stop the process. A scent was released with the opening of the tomb, and people declared that it was the curse escaping, but the truth was that it was just the scent of the embalming oils. World War II was already underway, but many believed that it was not a coincidence that Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union without a declaration of war only two days after the tomb was opened. To back up the theory that the invasion was spurred by the curse, the Battle of Stalingrad was won by the Soviets and was a turning point in the war, and this came a month after Stalin ordered the return of the remains of Tamerlane and his dynasty. They were buried again with full honors. Was the curse really at play during World War II? We'll never know, but the theory certainly is odd.
Sweet dreams. Deadwood, South Dakota was a rough and tumble mining camp at its beginnings, but it soon became a bustling city built on the wealth of the gold found nearby. Western luminaries visited and are buried here. Natural disasters and destructive fires ravaged the city on several occasions, but like the little city that could, Deadwood always bounced back. Prohibition and outlawing gambling did not stop some of the illegal activities, and opium dens, gambling halls, saloons, and brothels thrived. Despite the city moving forward into the modern world, Deadwood is forever a permanent fixture in the lore of the American West. Many historic buildings still exist, and Mount Moriah Cemetery holds the remains of many famous Western legends. The buildings and cemeteries hold more than just history. Spirits reputedly haunt many locations in Deadwood. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Deadwood, South Dakota. In April of 1868, ownership of the Black Hills was signed over to the Lakota Sioux Nation via the Fort Laramie Treaty. As was the case with all U.S. government and Native tribes, that ownership would not last long, particularly when gold was discovered. The last major gold rush would come to the Black Hills in 1874. An expedition arrived in the area led by General George Armstrong Custer, who was tasked with finding a good location for a fort. Two prospectors came along and they discovered gold at French Creek near the future Custer in South Dakota. Prospectors rushed for their chance to find some gold. Eventually, more gold was found in a nearby gulch and tents filled the sloped hills. The gulch was given the name Deadwood Gulch because the trees that covered the hillsides were dead pines. A town quickly grew up, and in April of 1876, the city of Deadwood was officially laid out. And I do know that the Black Hills gold is beautiful. I've actually gotten to see it. I've seen the Badlands and I've seen the Black Hills, but we did not stop in Deadwood. So unfortunately, I have not seen that city yet. Well, I want to go see all of that stuff because I've never seen it. I just know what the gold is, of course. (laughs) And don't they have bear country too? They do have bear country. It's very cute. And another really good reason to go to South Dakota is they have a national park so we can get a stamp. (laughs) You and your stamps. (laughs) And that national park is named for the geological formations that dot the land. These formations are called the Badlands. Deadwood had its own Badlands right along the sides of Main Street. This name referred to the saloons and brothels that lined the street. Deadwood soon came to be known as a dangerous place, but that didn't stop the wagon trains from rolling into town. One of those wagon trains arrived from Colorado. It had stopped in Cheyenne along the way and picked up Western legends Wild Bill Hickok and Calamity Jane. Hickok would not be in Deadwood long before he was killed while playing poker at Nuttall and Man's Saloon Number 10. It was August 2nd and the trigger man was Jack McCall. Hickok was holding a pair of aces and a pair of eights, now known as the Dead Man's Hand. A miner's court was formed and they acquitted McCall of the murder. He takes off but is eventually hunted down, convicted by a real court, and hanged. Hickok was laid to rest at the first boot hill in town at Whitewood Gulch, later known as Ingleside. It was August 3rd, and Colorado Charlie Utter paid for the plot and the headstone. The epitaph carved into the wooden board read, 
Wild Bill, J.B. Hickok, Killed by the Assassin, Jack McCall, in Deadwood, Black Hills, August 2nd, 1876. Pard, we will meet again in the happy hunting ground to part no more. Goodbye. Colorado Charlie C.H. Utter. Yeah, so I don't know why this Jack McCall shot Wild Bill Hickok. I don't know if he owed him some money or there was some kind of fight over the poker table. Obviously, Hickok was holding a very good hand there with a pair of aces and a pair of eights. But what kind of a miner's court sounds more like a kangaroo court to me? No, kangaroo courts are down under, not (laughs) here in the U.S. And they just acquitted him. I guess you could just shoot a guy at the poker table and it's what, self-defense? I'm not sure, but I'm glad the real court got after him and, and he met his end there. Al Swearingen arrived in Deadwood in May 1876. He was great at running entertainment businesses, but he was a horrible man to women. He was married and divorced three times, and all three women accused him of abuse. Within a week of arriving, Swearingen had set up a temporary dance hall. That hall was replaced with the Cricket Saloon. Prize fights between miners were set up here in a 5 by 5 space. Can you imagine these fighting in a 5 by 5 space? No, because that's barely a kick. I mean, that's not even as tall as most men. <laughs> that kind of reminds me of when they would tie people together, like their feet together, and then they'd have to fight each other that close. Wow. Yeah, you couldn't even really move. It'd Mm-mm. be really hard. And the reason why is when they called this a dance hall, it literally was a hall. (laughs) It was just about the size of a hallway. So it wasn't really that big. I wonder Um, if that's where that term dance hall came from. I'm not sure. That's that would be a good question. I don't know if anybody knows the history of dance establishments, but that could be why. On April 7th, 1877, Swearingen opened the Gem Variety Theater, which was considered a very fine entertainment establishment. Performers ranged from singers and dancers to comedians, and prize fights continued here as well. The theater provided a different type of entertainment for some customers. The main purpose was to serve as a brothel, and it was one that no woman would want to ply her trade within. It gained a reputation for the debasement of women, which is not surprising considering that Swearingen was a wife beater. Oh, sounds like a lovely place, not... Al Swearingen had a devious way of attracting women to come to work for him. He would put out word to Eastern hotels that he had a great opportunity for women to work as stage performers at the theater. He would buy a one-way ticket for interested women. It was only when they arrived that they realized that the kind of performance expected of them was not acting. They had no way to get home and they were stranded. They either worked for Swearingen or they were thrown into the street. They would be forced to dance with men for a dime, and there were little curtained rooms behind the main theater for other forms of entertainment. The women were routinely beaten, and many of the desperate ones committed suicide. It wasn't just Swearingen that beat them. The bouncers and Dan Doherty, the general manager, all participated in brutalizing the ladies. The girls were referred to as the Jim's Painted Ladies. The Jim Theater and Saloon was a brutal place, and bullets would fly. One of the prostitutes named Trixie shot a man who beat her in the head. He didn't die, and a doctor stuck a probe in his head to figure out how he survived. He died 30 minutes later. You gotta love that. Let me see. How did you get shot in the head and you're not dead yet? Let me stick this in there and see what's going on. (laughs) Well, you're dead now. (laughs) If you weren't gonna die, you are now. Let me push the bullet in, see if I can get it in there deeper. Medical advances in Deadwood. (laughs) E.B. Farnham was a businessman, and he was elected the town's first mayor. 
He and the commissioners drew up the first city charter and established the town limits in 1876. Seth Bullock would become another well-known resident of Deadwood, and he arrived in August of 1876. He and a partner, Solomon Saul Starr, opened Starr and Bullock Hardware. They sold mining equipment, lumber, and other supplies. Eventually, Bullock would become Marshall, and he and Swearingen would have multiple run-ins. The two men drew an imaginary line down the middle of Main Street. This is when the term Badlands came into use, and that was left for Swearingen to run, while Marshall Bullock controlled Upper Main Street. Bullock was a man that commanded respect, and it was said that he had such piercing gray eyes that his gaze could stop fights. He had the look. He did. He had the look. Totally, Denise, just like you. Bullock and Teddy Roosevelt were very good friends, and when Teddy Roosevelt was elected vice president, he appointed Bullock as the first force supervisor of the Black Hills Reserve. And here's a fun fact about Bullock. 30 miners held a strike at the Keats Mine, and the miners were saying that they weren't going to budge until they got back pay. They were violating the property rights, and Marshall Bullock was tasked with taking care of the problem. He was quite resourceful and brought sulfur in Chinatown. He lit it up and dropped it into the mine's air shafts, and those miners came out sputtering and surrendered to the sheriff and his deputies. This may be one of the first uses of what we call tear gas. I thought that was great. He's like, hmm, how can I get them to come out of there? Okay, I'll just throw this stuff down there so they can't breathe, and here they came. The Gem Theater and Saloon caught fire in 1879, but was quickly repaired. On September 26th of that year, a fire rages through Deadwood, destroying over 300 buildings and leaving 2,000 people homeless. A bakery on Sherman Street is where the fire originated. It took the citizens about six months to rebuild, and they got really smart this time, and they said, you know, when we laid down the town and we built all these buildings originally, we built them out of wood, how about we do brick from now on? So they built most of the new structures with brick and stone. And this was a good idea for any of these cities, because how many times have we heard, Denise, that a fire would just rage through these downtown areas and just burn everything? We've heard that quite a few times. The gem burned down again and was once again rebuilt during this fire that happened, so it almost burned twice in one year there. A third devastating fire in 1899 would finish the gem for good, and Swearingen would leave town. And They I think, all said, hooray! <laughs> I was just going to say, I think a lot of them were really happy. And apparently he got his own because he was found in Denver shortly thereafter with some blunt force trauma to the head. So apparently he was murdered in Denver. They don't know by who. Well, and Denver used to be a pretty uh, tough city as well. It was a rough place. And, you know, I don't know, maybe the women in Denver weren't going to put up with some of his stuff. So who knows who gave him a little conk to the head there. The local paper referred to the gem and this was after it finally was closed down for good as a place of harrowing tales of iniquity, shame, and wretchedness, of lives wrecked and fortunes sacrificed, of vice unhindered and esteem forfeited. So I don't think they were sorry to see the uh, gem get burned to the ground. Although I think it was surrounded by a lot of places of iniquity. Although it had been a place of entertainment for the miners and considered one of the finest theaters around, the press would continue to refer to the gem as the everlasting shame of Deadwood. The Mineral Palace Casino stands on that location today. Haven't heard about any hauntings at the Mineral Palace Casino. So if anybody's heard anything different that comes from that area or if you visited, we'd love to know that because I'm thinking with as much brutality that was going on at the gym and you had all of these women who would commit suicide and just were living these wretched lives there, I find it hard to believe that that would not be haunted. So 
I know it burned down. Maybe it cleansed it. But I have a feeling there might be something going on at this Mineral Palace Casino. I would think so, for sure. Deadwood would be officially incorporated in 1881. Two years later, a large snow melt off and heavy rains caused destructive flooding in the town. But they bounced back again, which seems to be the theme for Deadwood. In 1891, Alice Ivers Duffield, later known as Poker Alice Tubbs, arrived in Deadwood. One of her favorite sayings was, At my age, I suppose I should be knitting, but I'd rather play poker with five or six experts than eat. She was born in England and immigrated to Colorado with her family. She married Frank Duffield, and he was a proficient poker player. He taught her how to play, and she became quite skilled. He was killed when trying to reset some dynamite in Leadville. Alice decided that she would use poker to support her family. She was very attractive and used her good looks to distract the men, and she puffed on big fat cigars. Before long, she was a legend. She could make as much as $160,000 a night in today's money. She married a dealer named Tubbs. They had seven children, and she decided to help out with the ranch. He died of pneumonia, and she went back to gambling. She died in 1930. I just thought she was one of the fun characters that is connected to Deadwood. And uh, we have a picture in the show notes if you'd like to check that out of Poker Alice Tubbs in her elderly years, puffing on a cigar. (laughs) It's really, really cool. In 1894, Bullock and his partner Star would decide to try their hands at running a hotel. They wanted their place to be classy and upscale. They built it along Main Street, but it burned down shortly thereafter. They decided to rebuild, but in a better location. They chose to build their new place up and over a large fireproof store and warehouse built in 1876, which had already survived two of those previous fires that we've told you about. The Bullock Hotel opened in 1896. It was built from pink and white sandstone in the Italianate style with a tin roof, and there are three stories with 64 rooms. The rooms were steam heated, and each floor had a bathroom. There was a parlor and library, and the first floor featured a restaurant serving luxurious tastes, which could at times include lobster. So imagine getting lobster in South Dakota. I thought that was kind of impressive. Yes, very much so. The downstairs was carpeted in red velvet and adorned with fine oak and fir wood trim. Brass chandeliers hung from the ceilings, and there was a beautiful Steinway grand piano. Guest rooms had iron and brass beds with furniture made of oak. Future renovations would change the rooms from 64 to 28, and each has had its own bathroom added, and the rooms were expanded. So it was a very nice-looking hotel, so they wanted it to be upscale, and it was. The hotel itself passed through various hands, but held on to the original furnishings until 1976, when the owners at the time, the Ayers family, decided to sell, and they auctioned off the furniture. The Bullock was refurbished to its former glory in 1990. Many of the historic properties were bought up and refurbished at this time. The Historical Bullock Properties Company also bought the Homestake Mansion, which is now a B&B, the Town Hall, which is now an inn, the Branch House, and the Franklin Hotel. Gambling was brought to town, and the revenue was used to renovate everything. So what had happened is Deadwood had started to fall into real disrepair. Nobody was coming there. There wasn't much of a population All of these historic buildings were starting to fall into ruin. And the government looked at it and said, this is horrible. We don't want to lose all of the history that we have going on here. But we can't afford to take care of this place. 
And they said, well, there's something that we could do. And I know that when we lived in Colorado, a lot of those Colorado mining towns that were historical did the same thing, particularly in the 90s. And they opened themselves up to gambling. Yes, they did. And it has helped to turn these towns into booming towns. So I may not necessarily agree with the whole gambling thing, but it has definitely saved Deadwood and helped it to thrive. And it's done the same thing for a lot of those Colorado mountain towns as well. The Bullock is reputedly haunted by Seth Bullock. Bullock loved the hotel and died there in 1919 in room 211. Staff and guests both claim to have had paranormal experiences. The front desk keeps track of all the stories. The hallways on both the second and third floor have a heavy feeling and staff claim that if they are idle for too long, that things start to move about and that they get a feeling that they're being watched. The thinking is that Seth Bullock doesn't like it when the employees aren't doing their jobs and getting things done and doing it in a timely manner. So if they're lounging around, it's almost like he gives them a little poke and says, hey, get to work. And, you know, if you feel like somebody is watching you, remember what we said about that stare that he would give people? It would cause fights to stop. So I can only imagine in the afterlife him giving you a stare down. You might feel those icy chills. Yeah, or the eyes boring into the back (laughs) of your head or something. Showers turn off and on by themselves. Pictures taken in room 211 show a white vapory mist above the bed sometimes. Bullock seems to be angry about slot machines in the lobby. Something that people may not know about Bullock is he was a very straight-laced kind of guy. When he came into Deadwood, it was rough and tumble. There was no law here. It was crazy. So when he came into town, he was going to change things. And he didn't like all of the prostitution and the gambling. And what they decided to do is they were going to start charging some of these opium dens, taxes, and they were trying everything they could to shut this down. So you can only imagine a guy who wasn't into this kind of stuff. And here his beloved hotel has slot machines right smack dab in the lobby. I can understand him being a little angry about that. The man who supervised the installation of those slot machines decided to stay overnight in the hotel. Or at least he tried to stay. In the middle of the night, he was awakened by a violent shaking from something he could not see. He was so terrified that he ran from the hotel and he would not stay there any longer. A female teller at the gambling check-in cage turned her back and she had a drink that was sitting there in front of her. It was thrown across the room and crashed to the floor. Children were taken in during a cholera outbreak and several succumbed to the disease in the hotel. They're heard running the halls and like to arrange change by denominations. So I guess when people leave some of their money sitting there, the kids like to, I don't know, arrange the nickels and dimes and pennies. The hotel was featured on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. A reviewer on TripAdvisor wrote, Before we stayed at this hotel, I read about most of the paranormal activity. I honestly do not believe in this and thought it would be a fun place to stay. After my stay at the Bullock Hotel, I am now a believer. I was standing outside the door to our room, number 305, and I heard a male voice whisper to me, Can you hear me? I turned around and no one was on the floor but me. I freaked out. Needless to say, I didn't sleep much the last night we were there. When we returned home and developed pictures, I do have a mysterious blur next to the Seth Bullock picture on the third floor. The staff is awesome and very friendly and helpful. We love Deadwood and hope to return someday, but I think I may opt to sleep somewhere else simply because it totally freaks me out. (laughs) You got to wonder about a place that makes somebody a true believer. Yes, indeedy. 
the Lawrence County government decided that another Boot Hill Cemetery needed to be built. In 1878, this cemetery was laid out by Deadwood's Masons higher up on the hillside of a rough mountain top. This is a classic Victorian cemetery set in the northern Black Hills. They named it Mount Moriah Cemetery because of Masonic literature. There's a line that reads, Bury him on the hill west of Mount Moriah. Also, the Bible and Jewish Torah served as inspiration, and that is represented in the road names in the cemetery. The cemetery gateway has several symbols on it representing the Independent Order of Odd Fellows, Freemasonry, and the Star of David. Around 3,700 people are buried here. There's a mass grave for 11 men killed in a fire at a boarding house near the lumber mill where they worked. And there's a children's section because so many died from typhus, cholera, and smallpox outbreaks. In 1879, Colorado Charlie Utter supervised as Wild Bill's remains were moved to a new burial site at Mount Moriah. So he decided, let's get him out of that original boot hill, which was not a very nice looking cemetery. And they wanted to put it in a, I guess, a safer location. There is a monument that was set up for Wild Bill as well, and it was a representation of him. And unfortunately, this cemetery throughout the decades was vandalized many times. You guys all know how I feel about vandals and cemeteries. And they literally destroyed this bust of Wild Bill. They would chip away at it to take souvenirs. I don't know. What is the point of that? Look, I have the nose that I chipped off of the Wild Bill Hickok sculpture. I mean, does anybody think you're cool if you show them that? And I, what is the point, I'm thinking? Yeah, it's weird. So over time, it just got chipped away so bad that by the 1930s, it was finished. So there probably is no longer a memorial sitting there. It just has his stone. And they put, uh, I think it's a gate around it. And they had a, like, a, they bricked it in and, and put a gate on it to try to keep the vandals out. It's just stupid, but... Uh, Calamity Jane returned to Deadwood in 1903, and she died in August in a nearby city. She was buried next to Wild Bill Hickok. I've heard a couple of things. I've heard that it was her last request was to be buried next to him. And I've also heard that she was just brought back there for the publicity of it, that they thought, oh, let's put these two right next to each other. It would be great for tourism and that kind of thing. So I'm not sure about the real reason behind that. Seth Bullock is buried in Plot 99. It's up on a high trail to White Rocks over Mount Moriah, so you have to hike up a little ways, I think, to get there. It's my understanding that it's a dollar entrance fee for you to go through the cemetery. And a fun fact about Mount Moriah Cemetery is that the American flag flies above it 24 hours a day, and this is based on tradition. I guess they've just always done that, so they always will continue to do that. People who enter the cemetery immediately feel as though they are being watched. Two female employees were locking up one night and did their standard walk through to make sure that no one was left in the cemetery. They saw a couple of shadows, and when they investigated to see what it was causing those shadows, they found nothing. Full-bodied apparitions of Chinese workers have been seen in the Chinese section of the cemetery. The interesting thing about this is that nearly all of the Chinese bodies were disinterred and shipped off to China for burial due to religious reasons. The front gates open and close on their own at times, and voices have been heard in the cemetery, and sometimes it is multiple voices that seem to be carrying on a conversation. No employee wants to work there by themselves. There's a little gift shop nearby. And nobody will work the gift shop by themselves. Nobody will work the cemetery by themselves, especially at night. And I believe when they hear the voices, a lot of the time they're in the gift shop. And so they'll hear the voices and be like, 
well, the cemetery's closed. Why are there people in there? And they'll look, and of course, they don't see anybody. And I should mention, too, Bullock's partner, Saul, is also buried in the Jewish section of Mount Moriah as well. Harris Franklin arrived in America as a poor Jewish boy, and he died a multimillionaire. So this is a guy who truly lived the American dream. You can come here with nothing and die a multimillionaire. He came to South Dakota with the Black Hills Gold Rush and made Deadwood his home. He opened up a successful liquor store and then became a prosperous cattleman. He was one of the most prominent in the West, owning up to 30,000 head at one time. He built many things that modernized the town from a bank to a chlorination works to a smelter. Franklin heavily financed the building of the Franklin Hotel in 1903, and it bears his name. It's uh, four stories with 80 rooms, and I didn't find anything that told me that it was haunted, so I don't believe that there's any weird activity going on at the Franklin Hotel. Because the Franklins were so rich, they built this really lavish and neat-looking Victorian mansion in Deadwood on Van Buren Street in 1892, and it has this big turret right outside of it, and it just, it looks really marvelous. It's one of my favorite kind of designs when it comes to the Victorian design, and uh, Deadwood had never seen a house like this at that time. So it was pretty special. It had indoor plumbing, electricity, a telephone. Later on, the mansion was bought by the Adams family, and that's A D A M S. (laughs) Just to be clear. (laughs) And today it is known as the Adams House. So even though this guy who came from nothing and built a lot of Deadwood's properties there and and helped to modernize the town and was a a big founder for it, a pioneer basically for the town. It's not known as the Franklin House. It's known as the Adams House. W.E. Adams died of a stroke in the house and his wife claimed that his spirit was still in the house and she would hear him walking on the second floor. Now she left the house for a time and moved to California. She left everything in the house and it sat empty didn't have anybody living there for 50 years, just had the stuff in it. A lot of people said that she wouldn't go back to the house because she was so afraid of it because it was haunted. Now, the story, there's a couple of stories when it comes to this or theories about whether it was really haunted or not. Some people think that she just made up that story so that there wouldn't be any vandals or homeless people breaking in and squatting or what have you. But when you listen to what we're going to tell you about this house, I don't think she just made up these stories to keep people from breaking in. I think that she really felt like there was a spirit there because, well, to me, it almost seems like there is. Now, the house became a bed and breakfast later when it finally sold. And now at this current time, it's a museum that can be toured. So you can go through it if you want to. And it gives you kind of a feeling for what it was like back in the day and has some Victorian furniture and such in it. They do haunted tours of it in October. Visitors and employees have seen a rocking chair rock on its own. A shadow figure that appears to be male has been seen standing in an upstairs window and disembodied footsteps and voices have been heard throughout the house. The woman who became the director of the museum, Mary Kopko in 1995 lived next to the Adams house and she claimed to see a thin man pacing around the second floor. She thought about calling the police to report an intruder, but decided to investigate herself. She found the house empty. The doors and windows were locked up tight. 
Another night, she arrived at the house and saw a light on inside. She figured an employee had left it on. She entered with a couple of visiting family members, and they all heard footsteps coming from upstairs. They checked the house and found no one there. One Christmas, a tree that was decorated in Mrs. Adams' room would have all of the ornaments removed and lying on the floor in the morning when the employees would open up the museum. The Fairmont Hotel opened in 1895 as a Victorian brothel, bar, and gaming hall. Ron Russo bought the building in 1989 and renovated the hotel. It's not a hotel anymore, but it's a casino and it has a restaurant and they offer tours. And it's mostly an oyster bar, so they have a lot of seafood and oysters there. What is it with oyster bars and ghosts? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe there's a connection. (laughs) It's not just an aphrodisiac. Dead Files, Ghost Adventures, and Ghost Lab have all featured this location, and there seems to be several spirits here. Amy and Steve of the Dead Files experienced paranormal activity when they investigated, particularly on the third floor. There was a spirit there that they identified as Grumpy Man. And for people who don't know, Amy is a medium. And so she had some kind of interaction with him that made her think of him as Grumpy Man. It's thought that this is the spirit of a man named Henry, whose girlfriend died of syphilis in the brothel. Another prostitute named Maggie threw herself from a third floor window when her boyfriend left her. People are touched by unseen entities on this floor as well. An apparition of a man in a black frock coat and top hat has been seen by patrons in the bar area. And the spirit of a young boy has been seen, too, near the Oyster Bar restaurant. The original saloon number 10, where Wild Bill Hickok was shot, is right next door. Now, the chair that he was sitting in when he was shot is on display down Main Street. Apparently, they recreated the saloon number 10, and now it's called Old Style Saloon Number 10. And so they have a lot of the memorabilia in that, plus the chair that he was sitting in apparently when he was shot. Deadwood is a window into the Wild West past of America. It had it all here, from the gold rush to gambling to brothels and to gunfights. That spirit carries on today, as do some of the spirits from the era. Is the town of Deadwood haunted? That is for you to decide. It's one of those places where you think to yourself, how could it not be haunted? On our next episode, we're going to check out the Santa Maria Inn, which is in California. And we're going to be joined by a special guest, Elliot Gladstone of the Entwined podcast. He has stayed there a couple of times. And Denise, he described his experiences there as freaky pants. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So they must be kind of crazy. So we're looking forward to bringing that to you guys next. We'd love to have you check out our website at historygoesbump.com. Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We want to thank Avery for sending us some of his suggestions for New Orleans eateries and tours to check out. Rhonda also sent us some of her pictures that she took while she stayed at the Waitomo Hotel down in New Zealand. And I will add those to our show notes for the Waitomo episode that we did. And uh, she said she didn't have any haunting experiences happen while she was there, but she said it was kind of a creepy place and it's a little run down. So just be prepared for that. She showed us some pictures where they basically had taped the windows were cracked and they just kind of put tape on them. So because they didn't want them to break. It's been around for a while. It needs a little bit of rehab. Also, if you are an executive producer, make sure you're checking out Patreon for some of our text posts that we put up there. I just put one up about you guys participating in doing some bumpers for the show. 
So check that out. And I've emailed those of you who are executive producers through PayPal. Denise, coming up on January 9th, the Haunted America Conference is going to have their tickets on sale. Yes, they are. And we're working right now. I know a lot of you have let us know that you're going to be coming because we're working on a History Goes Bump meetup prior to the start of the conference on Friday around lunchtime. We're planning on getting in there on Thursday. So for those of you who come in earlier like that, we'll probably do something for dinner. But we're definitely getting together for lunch on that Friday. We'll probably do a little mini tour of St. Charles, talk about some of the haunted locations there, do a little bit of shopping. Then the conference starts. Wait, 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 wait. How about a lot of bit of shopping? Whatever. Then the conference will start. We'll hang out for that. And I know on the Friday night, they have a masquerade ball, which wasn't really our thing last year. So we'll probably do something else in the evening. Not sure what. And then Saturday, we have the conference all day long. And then we're going to do the Alton Ghost Tour. We did it last year, but we thought we'd do it again this year. It's really good. There's a lot of in-depth stuff with it. And we have a lot of new people that we think are going to be joining us, and we don't want them to miss out on that this time. I don't know that we'll do it again in the future, but we're definitely going to do that again this year. Yes, we are. And then on Sunday, we're going to go up to the Lincoln Homestead, which is in Upper Illinois. And get a stamp. And get a stamp. It's about a two-hour drive, so uh, you either have to have driven, have a rental car. We'll have a rental car, so we have to drive about two hours to get up there, so... Just be thinking about that, and we'd love to have you guys join us for the entire weekend. In order to get your tickets, go to American Spook Shows, and there's an S on the end there, .com, AmericanSpookShows.com. And then the conference hotel where it's taking place, if you want to stay there, it's the Atrium Hotel, and you can find that at AtriumHotel.net. And we want to thank Debbie and her sister for doing the research on this for us. They have a block of rooms at the hotel that are running for $115 plus tax per night. So make sure you let them know that you're coming with a Haunted America conference to get that deal. And if you're going to come, please let us know so that we will be looking out for you. And then we have a couple of comments to share with you. Uh, Ellen let us know, love the podcast about the embassy building and the connection to the Hope Diamond, which I got to see twice. But I want to make one small correction. The reason why the Hope Diamond was supposedly cursed is because it was rumored to have been taken from the eye of a Hindu god or goddess. Oh. Which I thought was a lot more interesting than just being stolen from the Spanish crown jewels or what have you. Yes, that sounds much more fun. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine that diamond being the eye of a Hindu god or goddess? That'd be a heck of a statue because that's not a small stone. And then Kelly shared with us. She said, this morning I was thinking about the ghost legends in my hometown of Benicia, California. There are quite a few as it was a pretty rough and tumble gold rush town. So I thought this goes hand in hand with Deadwood. Yes, it does. It was full of unsavory characters and the bad things they do. The Union Hotel dating back to the 1850s is supposedly haunted by a woman who was murdered. Her wraith, and if you're using a term like wraith, that's terrifying, has been seen floating around the rooms. The Gingerbread House B&B, which is now a private residence, had a ghost statue in its garden that would appear and disappear. That is freaky. Yes, it is. Like, oh, look at the statue in the garden. Oh, the statue's gone. The statue's usually aren't really light. And we actually have the Gingerbread House on our list. It's been sitting there for a little bit. The Lido, once a bar where Jack London drank, is now a bookstore and it has its own set of spooks. And my favorite, the Washington House, a former brothel and speakeasy, now an assortment of shops, 
I worked in a doll store there years ago, and there were a number of strange experiences. Whispers, pictures falling off the walls, whiffs of perfume, objects disappearing and reappearing. I also worked as a docent in the historic Fisher Hanlon house, which is not haunted at all, for the record. And then uh, Rich had commented back on there, I live in nearby Napa and never knew or even thought about Benicia as being rich with bumpy history. Makes sense since Benicia has that gold rush pass and was the third capital of California. And then he asked, ever go to Port Costa over the bridge from Vallejo? That town gives me the creeps because it's cut off and forgotten with its old rickety buildings. I experienced very strange stuff in the hotel, which may have been a former brothel, there years ago when a friend took me inside. I only go to Port Costa in the daytime now. And Kelly had said that uh, she definitely had been to Port Costa. We used to go there at night a lot to that bar that they had supposedly a beer from every country. And then she said, ever check out the abandoned school and ever heard about the bodies dumped along the train tracks outside of town? Wow, it sounds like a lovely place to go visit. Rich said, oh my God, that closed up school freaks me out. I've never heard of the bodies dumped on the train tracks, so even more freaky. The whole area just feels wrong to me. Sounds like there's some very good reasons for that. And Kelly said, from what I understand, the bodies aren't necessarily killed there. It's just a good place to put them. (laughs) I guess it's a good dumping ground. Uh, She said, my boyfriend and I were having a romantic walk one night when we wandered into a crime scene investigation. (laughs) (laughs) like great sounds fabulous all right and then we have a review to share with you guys from itunes this is oddities ghosties and histories five stars from cats cats and bats 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 hearing hello you spooktacular people has become a daily part of my life that i always look forward to i always feel entertained and informed and what really completes this show for me are the two amazing hosts They really do make you feel like you're having a nice conversation with good friends, which at times can be a very nice thing for an introvert like me. Oh, look, a fellow introvert, Denise. I'll be honest, I'm not sure what I believe when it comes to the supernatural, but that certainly doesn't stop me from being hooked on this show. They do their best to remain unbiased and admit that they're not always right. I suggest listening to some newer episodes first if you're new to the show, since many people complain about the audio, which I've heard isn't too great in the very beginning, but quickly improves greatly. I'm working my way backwards, so I haven't gotten there yet. I wish nothing but the best for Diane and Denise in the show and look forward to hopefully years more of History Ghost Bump. Well, thank you so much, cats and bats. We appreciate that. Shannon had made the comment that she was going back to the beginning and listening, coming forward, because she wanted to make sure to listen to the shows before some of them disappear or fall off or whatever. Well, I don't know exactly how iTunes works. I know it used to be that you could only see the, the most recent 300 shows or episodes i think that itunes they may not show them but when you subscribe i think you do get all the shows to download and even if that isn't the case we have them all in our archives over at the main website so if you go to historyghostbump.com and click on the archives tab you'll be able to find all the shows there always they'll never go away all right well denise is starting to nod off over here so i guess we better end this episode before she starts snoring into the microphone there That would not be a nice sound. No. I want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Laurel Christick, Robert Flood, and Margarita McGallan. And we'd like to thank Jennifer Durham for her generous one-time donation. Thanks. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review. (laughs) 